Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a special offer for Review Systems listeners from the Harvard Center for Primary Care on an upcoming conference. Welcome to Review Systems, your podcast for discussion of primary care innovation, payment reform, healthcare policy, and more. I'm Thomas Kim, joined by David Rosenthal and Audrey Provenzano. For this episode, we are discussing a recent article from the journal uh, Women's Health Issues entitled Understanding High Utilization of Unscheduled Care in Pregnant Women of Low Socioeconomic Status by Pooja Mehta, Tamala Carter, Chloe Vinoya, Shreya Kengovi, and Sindhu Srinivas. Uh, and we're thrilled to have a very special guest with us tonight, uh, the lead author of the paper, Pooja Mehta. Pooja, welcome. Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Pooja. I'm a generalist OBGYN, and I'm currently an assistant professor of public health and OBGYN at Louisiana State University and uh, the director for women's and maternal health policy at the LSU Consortium for Healthcare Transformation. Welcome, Pooja. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So in this paper, the investigators wanted to better understand why some low-income women repeatedly seek unscheduled hospital-based obstetric care during their pregnancy. With the idea that they could better understand the women's reasons for seeking care, they could perhaps design care structures or interventions um, in antenatal care for these women that might better meet their needs. Pooja, can you tell us a little bit about how you came upon this research question? Sure. So the idea for this study really came from a very specific experience that I had as a as an OBGYN resident in Boston, uh, and from a single patient whom I'll call R, who I came to know over the course of her 25 visits to an urban uh, obstetric triage unit during her first pregnancy. And an obstetric triage unit is basically like an emergency room for somebody who happens to be pregnant, uh, past a certain point in pregnancy, many academic emergency rooms that are in hospitals where there's also a labor and delivery unit will send pregnant patients to where the obstetrician gynecologists are in case there's a pregnancy-related emergency. And this patient R was totally unforgettable for so many reasons. She had sickle cell anemia and opioid dependence. She was very sick. She's one of the sickest people I'd ever taken care of. And she just came to the hospital a lot and spent most of her pregnancy with us. And I, like many other providers, used to complain every time I saw her name pop up in our electronic tracking system, the typical kind of here she is again reaction. She's what we would call a difficult patient, uh, by which I mean a patient whose problem couldn't be quickly addressed by a resident in triage in 10 minutes using an algorithm. So now I recognize that response is a hallmark of maybe a system that revolves a little bit more around providers sometimes than around patients. But at the time, she, she was just a very frustrating patient, and we got to know her really well. But we never knew the circumstances that were driving her into the hospital over and over again. She was sometimes sick when she came in. Sometimes she didn't seem sick to us, but had symptoms that were clearly very distressing to her. And the other reason I'll never forget her is that despite spending so much of her pregnancy with us, she had an incredibly catastrophic uh, delivery and outcome. Uh, she developed preeclampsia, had an emergency section, was in an ICU, and actually became very frustrated with her providers soon after delivery and signed out against a medical advice and died a few weeks later at another hospital that she'd apparently also been visiting many times during her pregnancy. And I never forgot her. It was a really 
memorable case. And I, I did, though, think it was a little bit of an outlier until I became a fellow uh, through the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program at the University of Pennsylvania and had some time to kind of think about my residency experiences and also became familiar with the work of Jeffrey Brenner and the Camden Coalition, uh, who at the time were picking up some national attention for focusing on high utilizers of emergency care in Camden. And this got me thinking about our story in a totally different way. I also became involved with the Center for Community Health Workers at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, this was a community health worker intervention that other researchers were using to try and think about how to address hospital readmissions. And with all of these ideas floating around and um, these incredible people who are focusing on some of the same issues that are faced, it seemed like the perfect moment uh, to, to think, to go back to this experience that I'd had a resident and try and understand if there was something more uh, to the story. The other weird thing that happened was that I was a new attending um, in a new hospital and there actually wasn't any space for me in the OB call pool. And I ended up having to take this job where I was only doing OB triage. And so I was spending <laughs> all these nights in an OB triage unit. And unlike when I was a resident, I wasn't just darting into triage to try and fix a problem in 10 minutes and then darting out. I really had to sit there and um, listening to patient stories and listening actually to the providers who staffed the triage unit, the nurses, talking about these patients who kept coming and kept coming. And uh, it, I just felt like there was some part of the story that we weren't hearing um, that I wanted to understand. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story of R and that incredibly inspiring story and sort of the impetus for writing and sort of doing more research into this question. And, you know, I think for me, it resonates so strongly with some of the work we're doing in the homeless um, population and in our clinic. Um, you know, one of the things that is different, obviously, is, you know, I, I care for patients at the VA, and I don't really care for obstetric care. Uh, and I'm curious if, Thomas, I know that you, um, you provide a lot of uh, obstetric care for many low-income women and low SES. I wonder if some of the stories and hearing that, that reflection, if that resonates with your clinical experience with you. Yeah, yeah. I've um, mostly done uh, my obstetric practice in a few different hospitals that are uh, primarily serve a low-income population, uh, urban populations. And, and the story definitely uh, is resonates with me you know if you spend any time in an emergency room or in an um, OB triage setting I, I do think there is a there is a, something of a risk to providers engendering some stereotypes across uh, the patients who come frequently to say you know why aren't people not doing the right things take care of themselves mm -hmm. it's 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 looking for the easy answer of course and there are some immodest claims of, you know, what's to blame there. I mean, the reality, if you think deeper about it, uh, I think as Pooja has, is that it reflects a, a, probably a variety of needs. And so it was, for me, this, this study was really interesting because there's clearly a lot or there's a growing body of work around um, other types of high utilizers with other types of um, conditions, non-pregnant. And, and really, this is... Um, uh, the you know analog in in the obstetric world. So 
uh, it was great to see the study and to see kind of um, some exploration into what those barriers may be to getting into prenatal care because there's been some things described in that. But this study really found some, some things beyond that, which I, for me was pretty neat. Okay, so I'll briefly go through the methods. Pooja, please um, correct me when I get something wrong. (laughs) So it was a qualitative study with some additional chart review, kind of supplementing the information that you gathered from interviews with women. Tamala Carter is a community-based interviewer, um, and I believe she conducted all of the interviews. They were in-depth, semi-structured interviews, and the other authors in the paper assisted with the chart abstraction and analysis. So all of the women were uninsured or Medicaid beneficiaries, and that was used as a proxy for SES, and all of the women were English-speaking. They used purposeful sampling to get the two groups of women, so high utilizers, which they defined as women who were 16 weeks or greater gestation, and had reported four or more unscheduled visits during the pregnancy so far, and low utilizers who were recruited at 36 weeks or greater. Pooja, can you talk a little bit more about how you developed the criteria for those two groups? Yeah, we we actually went back and forth about this for a very long, a surprisingly long time before we, we began the study. And I think the concept came from a place of looking at other similar studies that had focused on high utilizers outside of the setting of pregnancy and not being able to necessarily show that high utilizers were different from demographically similar people, uh, that their needs may not be that different from demographically similar people who may just have many life struggles. And so we were going back and forth about how to make this a, a more rigorous study where we had sort of a control group to think about really justifying why future interventions should target a high utilizer as opposed to anyone, you know, who may be low income, have challenged access to outpatient care, et cetera, et cetera. So in in designing the control group, we were really thinking, well, we, we need people who are similar enough that they're also showing up in triage because just logistically, we, we we wanted to have Tamla, our amazing secret weapon of the study. She's <laughs> an amazing interviewer. She literally hung out in triage for hours and hours, getting to know the systems and meeting, meeting patients and screening people. We wanted Tamla to recruit all of the patients from triage, but we really wanted to have two groups of people who were as different in terms of the exposure of interest, which is utilization as possible. And so we in order to pick people that we knew hadn't been high, become high utilizers at any point in their pregnancy, we felt that our control group had to be people who were close to the end of their pregnancy who could confirm that they really had survived their pregnancy without having to rely on many visits, which is why um, all of our low utilizers were 36 weeks um, or further along compared to our high utilizers who were just hitting that four-visit inflection point. Um, at any point in their pregnancy, if that makes sense. The other thing that we did is in order to figure out whether four was the right number, we, we went back and looked at a year of, of our triage data to think about who the upper 10th percentile of our patients were in terms of utilization, and four kind of reflected that 10 percentile cutoff in our own health system, recognizing that that may be different in different systems um, that are set up differently. 
Um, the last thing in our design that was really, really important, and we, we, we knew this from some of the other work that had come out of the Penn Center for Community Health Workers, we really wanted our interviewer to not be a healthcare provider uh, or to be someone who could be perceived as a healthcare provider because we were interested in having patients feel very comfortable and share both their community side experiences and their healthcare experiences. So Tamala um, is a community health worker from the neighborhood around the hospital where we did the study. Uh, who had shared life experience with, with many of the women who are ki coming in. Um, and really, the, in that sense, this is a participatory action study because uh, this is a non-healthcare worker who is, who's the point of contact in doing the interviews. Uh, so we could probably talk uh, a little bit about the methods, but we would probably encourage the listener just to uh, look through the paper to get the details. But I think, Pooja, you've already touched on that. The most important things there. Uh, she point out that in the analysis, as you go through the participants' responses, their perception of barriers uh, were kind of categorized into domains of um, one health status, uh, two health behaviors, three health system navigation, psychosocial factors, uh, resources for daily life, and then neighborhood and community factors. So those were the categories to kind of keep in mind as we go through the results. And just just so I know, is that is that from the Lillian Gelberg model from behavioral you know vulnerable populations? That's is right. That we got this from the Gelberg model. I mean, as you can tell, um, these interviews were incredibly rich and touched upon all kinds of aspects of people's lives. And we had a feeling that might happen based on other studies, but we just had so much information that we had to rely on a theoretical model to help us contextualize everything that that people had shared with us. So uh, we used uh, this theoretical framework to help us sort uh, all of the different experiences that people spoke about when they were talking about what was bringing them to the hospital, why they were choosing the hospital, um, what their prenatal care experiences were, and why they would you know, pick one setting over the other. So let's go through some of the, some of the results. The two groups of women were really well matched in terms of SES and other characteristics. Aside, of course, from care utilization and gestational age, and people can review that in Table 1 if they're interested. So some of the notable findings. High utilizers were significantly more likely to report adverse child experiences, or ACEs, um, even in the small sample. And I just want to bookmark that, that we also saw that in a show that we had with Dr. David Buck from Baylor, who talked about his work with high utilizing non-pregnant patients, and we'll link to that on our website if you haven't heard it. High and low utilizers reported similar social supports and pregnancy intention, so meaning if the pregnancy were planned or unplanned. High utilizers were more likely to face barriers from the six domains that Thomas talked about. There were two subpopulations of high utilizers that emerged, those with narratives that reflected psychosocial vulnerabilities during pregnancy and um, patients with narratives that were more centered on illness. There were some interesting common themes that came out. Women in both groups liked to hear that the baby was okay. Women in both groups said that it was easier to get care and triage or an unscheduled setting than in the clinic. A lot of them mentioned that they felt like their prenatal visits, um, they weren't necessarily engaged with a provider. One woman said, quote, I just pee and they listen to the heartbeat and that's it, unquote. And there was also some shared frustration at the lack of continuity, one provider throughout their pregnancy. 
Some factors that were unique to high utilizers, again, narratives relating to ACEs or adverse child events, childhood events, and poor coping skills, um, episodes of abuse, dysfunctional relationships, distrust and negative partner relationships, and some interpersonal violence, poor self-efficacy, um, and they frequently sought care for reassurance. And they also felt quite stigmatized about returning to the hospital frequently. And they were also more likely to report negative neighborhood features such as violence or blight. And then unique to low utilizers, the women tended to see pregnancy as a positive opportunity for change. And many of them, you know, as the study population intended, they faced poverty, but were more goal-oriented and motivated and had wider social supports than high utilizers. Pooja, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you think are, I mean, there's so much there, but, you know, what do you think are the greatest takeaways from the study? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I think the first point is that we didn't necessarily know what we were going to find, even though now we can say, okay, this sort of matches other high utilizer studies. When we were going into this study, you know, part of me just wanted to design an intervention without doing the study and to think about this patient group. Um, and, you know, the voices of my mentors and collaborators were sort of like, well, how do we know that pregnant high utilizers are just the same as other populations? And how do we know that high utilizers aren't just sicker people who need more care in the moment? And so maybe this is appropriate and this is meeting their needs. And one would presume that Pregnancy is a time of open access to the health system regardless, and this is a time when generally people whom we think of as young and healthy, who don't necessarily have any kind of pathology, should be able to have any health needs met because it's nine months. You have nine months to kind of get to a very discreet endpoint, and that's it. And I think some of our findings were surprising that all low-income women covered by Medicaid during pregnancy have these significant issues of access in terms of getting into prenatal care and also having needs met with prenatal care. That in many cases, in both groups, there was a perception that the hospital involved a higher quality care, even though the clinic that many of these patients were going to, the outpatient clinic, was actually in the same campus, the same hospital campus. There was still this perception that the outpatient clinic was lower quality and the inpatient triage unit was higher quality. And the other kind of myth that I think we debunked is that people who use emergency or unscheduled care don't know where else to go and that's why they're coming or they can't go anywhere else. These were people who were very savvy, uh, they were very rational in their choices. There was a clear story when we asked people, why did you choose to come here? And it often involved barriers to other parts of the health system. And that was surprising, considering that these are pregnant patients who ultimately have to give birth in a healthcare setting. Um, I think the other major take-home point is that these were demographically similar women um, who all looked like people who we think of as being at risk for disparities in this context in the United States, where we have an increasing maternal mortality, severe maternal morbidity rate. Um, we know that low-income and particularly black women are disproportionately at risk, but 20 of our study participants clearly had better coping mechanisms, resilience, support, and resources compared to 20 others. And so um, our, our real question is, can we use utilization as a way of getting more granular and whom we think about needs a different kind of model of care? Uh, and I think 
in terms of what you can tell from a qualitative study where the goal is just to generate hypotheses and not you know, make claims about prevalence. You know, yes, this was a different group of, of people who seemed like they were struggling um, disproportionately with staying healthy during pregnancy. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we can take that forward into work that now extends and explores some of these themes at a population level. Yeah, for me, I think I think the way you described these as rational preferences uh, mm-hmm. for specific unmet needs was, um, you know, one of the key takeaways for me. I, I, I think people are uh, need to understand that, that, uh, given what patients, certain patients may face, that, uh, showing up in OB triage is is the most rational uh, decision that that they're making. There is one other point that I wanted to make, which is the social support scale that we used um, wasn't really designed for this sample size. That's a scale that's sort of designed for a much larger sample size. And we we were collecting pilot data on, on the social support scale to see if there was a difference in these two groups. And the scores were similar, and it was a seven-question scale. Uh, but again, this is a tiny group of people. And the social support scale kind of asks generic questions like, you know, do you have someone you go to when you have a problem type of thing? When we got the qualitative answers to our questions about social support, really the social supports that the high utilizers named involved a lot of negative associations and and what I think of as dysfunction. These weren't necessarily supports that people could constantly rely on. And one of our take-homes was sort of, you know, how do we think about the anxiety and lack of reassurance, almost the panic that some of our high utilizers felt at being pregnant hmm. um, as, a, as a target for an intervention. These, hmm. these, these, this group didn't necessarily have what they needed in terms of accompaniment during their pregnancy, and, and, and that was driving a lot of what we would think of low-value utilization sort of coming because you just need to make sure the baby's okay or because... Um, you know, you're in an abusive situation and, and you need to be somewhere that feels safe for a second and have kind of some human contact. And that desperation really came out in these interviews. Mm-hmm. And that issue of social support is something that we're really thinking about uh, moving forward because it's not necessarily something that's embedded into prenatal care, especially in publicly funded systems where continuity of care may be a challenge. Oh, that's really interesting to hear that. And I, I just reflecting on that, you know, we see that in our sort of open access homeless veteran care that a lot of people come essentially for reassurance, mm-hmm. right, to come just be able to talk to our nurse, soak their feet, hang out, have a question. And the open access model is sometimes just the place to get reassurance, to pick up a piece of candy, to sit and sort of answer their questions that would then avoid an emergency room use. And, and you know, thinking about sort of the rational decision-making, some of the things that just sort of really made sense to me is that most of our outpatient clinics, um, and certainly it sounds like this is the case in OB as well, are not really set up for same-day access. Right. They may have the ability, but they're not really in a lean sort of judoka, sort of just-in-time access. So they're not really open access that you can come in whenever you want with a question or a concern. And then also, all of the tools and technologies aren't readily accessible to those outpatient clinics the way they are in OB triage, how quickly they can get great ultrasounds and things like that may not be really readily accessible in an outpatient clinic. So I can see why the perception of care 
Plus, people take a longer time. When you're in triage, you have a place to lay down. You can right. stay there for an hour or multiple hours, whereas that may not be the case in an outpatient clinic. So. We were really shocked, actually, that people thought that the wait time was longer in a prenatal clinic than it is in OB triage. I think one thing we haven't communicated so far um, in this podcast is how chaotic OB triage is for people who haven't spent a lot of time there. I mean, this waiting room is where people who are having obstetric emergencies are coming in, people in labor are coming in. Um, and the idea that people found that more accessible and more acceptable than mm. a prenatal outpatient clinic waiting room honestly was a surprise to me. The other thing is that the lessons in social support and coping really came to us from our low utilizer group, um, also mostly black low-income women who were managing their pregnancies even though they felt like their prenatal care wasn't that great. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of that, that coping was coming from really positive relationships. Um, you know, my auntie, my mother is helping me get through this. She tells mm -hmm. me when it's time to go to the hospital. I ask, I have this person I can ask my questions to. And sort of thinking about that kind of cohesion as being what gets um, some people through um, a lot of our lessons for recommendations directly came from echoing back things that our low utilizers were telling us about what was helping them get through their pregnancy, which I thought um, was one of you know, the really nice things about this study. Uh, yeah, I think to, to piggyback off of that, I think one of the just the most interesting thing for me here was that traditionally in other types of uh, high utilization, high cost type uh, studies or analyses that uh, really there's a lot around how do you deliver care differently or maybe provide different services in order to uh, improve the value or bend the cost curve. But I feel like the takeaway from this point really was like, can these high utilizer patients be signals uh, of subpopulations that um, in the community are having acts are having difficulty with social support or community resources and um, doing a more hot spotting analysis in that way seemed to be at least from a policy standpoint uh, one of the interesting things that one might take away from the results yeah I mean I think you know again to sort of go back to the methods we wanted to generate hypotheses and just pilot test whether there was a difference in these populations. And now some of the things that we need to think about in terms of effectively hotspotting have to do with looking at longer-term population-level data using methods that aren't as nice for storytelling <laughs> sometimes. But yeah. um, some of the work we're doing now is looking at state-level longitudinal data um, that follows women across pregnancies um, in the state of Massachusetts to understand, well, how long do high utilizers stay high utilizers? Again, are they are they regressing to a mean soon after because they're kind of getting their needs met or they deliver and their needs are different? Mm -hmm. um, are these patients who are really higher risk for a longer period of time? And when is the best time to intervene? And what should that intervention look like uh, is, is the question that we're really focusing on now. What is the role for for centering? As I understand it, centering is like, um, I guess, probably utilized in some areas of the country more than others, but is kind of a longitudinal group visit model of prenatal care. And I think some of the strengths of it are that it can provide peer support and covers a range of topics aside from just talking with women about normal pregnancy. 
Should generally we be moving towards that type of model of prenatal care, or is that the wrong question to be asking? Should we be screening for ACEs early in pregnancy, or should we be screening for other things to try to identify women who might have different needs earlier? Uh, so I would say yes to all of those things. I think centering is an example of a model of prenatal care that decenters the provider and centers kind of peer support while still providing patients with education and healthcare access that they need during pregnancy. However, centering also is a model of care where people who may have trust, attachment, privacy concerns, it may not be the best model for those patients. And what we're seeing right now is centering being picked up more for patients who are considered medically low risk and some experimentation and study of the role of centering in higher risk patients, medically higher risk patients, but certainly not a br the broad sweeping uptake across the country. And, I, and it's, it's great that you asked this question. It's almost like I planted this question. But at the end of these interviews, we actually had a portion of our interview guide that focused on high versus low utilizing women's thoughts on what how their prenatal care could be improved and what type of care they wish they could have had during their pregnancy, which of course is just asking people their opinions. It's not as as good as kind of testing satisfaction or outcomes after, you know, in a randomized trial or anything like that. But we do have a paper that we're working on now that summarizes those thoughts. And I think we want to at least be able to offer a person who's struggling with a lack of support different a menu of options for different types of care. And in many settings, that's not possible because centering requires a real infrastructure jump uh, for a prenatal clinic. It involves space. It involves having a facilitator, ideally not necessarily a physician facilitator, but a mid-level provider or midwife. Um, and it, in it involves an investment from institutions. And so I think we really need to move towards thinking about how those big sweeping restructuring prenatal care and also being able to offer people a menu of options. So if they want that face-to-face, one-on-one, more private model of care, uh, how do we draw something like community health worker support in that's well integrated with clinician visit and doesn't feel like it's just sort of tossing, like not coordinated case management and accompaniment um, and tossing the kitchen sink at someone, but rather being very thoughtful. Screening for ACEs is also something we've considered, and there's some controversy around screening for ACEs in, in, as a gateway into different models of care in that it, it brings up a lot, and some people think, well, maybe we're not addressing kind of the things that we bring up, but we, we have been thinking about different risk stratification. So ideally, we don't want someone to have to become a high utilizer before we intervene if there's a struggle that they're having during a pregnancy where you have such a limited window of opportunity to to change an outcome. And so what are some evidence-based risk stratification that we could do at the beginning of a pregnancy or at the point of initiation of care? How do we not miss opportunities? Maybe that needs to be done in triage if this is someone who's not using the prenatal care clinic or done in an emergency room in order to really respond to that signal that Thomas was talking about. We don't want the signal to have to fire 27 times mm -hmm. before onto it so right. i just gonna say that i just i really respect the work that you're doing and i think this is a wonderful paper and i think like both from a methodologic standpoint from the 
standpoint of the themes that you're working on and trying to answer these questions. And I just really love sort of the qualitative hearing the actual stories and trying to learn from who's sort of the positive um, deviance in some ways and who's doing well and coping well and using that to then teach others. That just, I think it's just wonderful and that just needs to get scaled on, on lots of different ways. Um, so Yeah, I agree. I mean, anyone who's sat on OB triage knows, you know, that there are lots of folks who come in frequently and it's easy to just say, oh, it's this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it's really helpful to see uh, no, there are plenty of people who are poor or low-resourced and don't access care in this way. Um, and there are lots of, like as David said, positive deviance. And, and the answer is much more complicated. And I'm definitely really excited about how this could be, um, kind of as you point out in the policy-making section, um, how could this, this could drive other types of com community collaboration and building community support and um, other services. Yeah, I agree. I felt like there were so many takeaways, things that resonated with the patients who I see and the, what the women talked about um, in, the, in the research. So, Thanks for reading this paper. And I, I should just say thank you also to my amazing team. This was really a very large effort. Uh, Tamala was the gem and jewel of the study and really unlocked sort of these stories gave women her trust and um, it's pretty incredible and um, if you're interested in this type of research and and some kind of population level strategies that come out of participatory action research definitely follow up on the work of Shreya Kangovi and the Penn Center for Community Health Workers. Uh, Sindhu Srinivas, um, my mentor and collaborator, is continuing with this type of work and thinking about some of the lessons of the study designing community health worker intervention um, in West Philadelphia. And stay tuned for a couple of other related papers that are coming out of the study. And then also we, we were funded by the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. So I feel like I have to give them a shout out to you. Thanks for the money. <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. Well, we'll have to have you back again in the future. You've been listening to Review of Systems. You can find links to Dr. Mehta's paper, our website, www.org rospod.org, as well as an archive of our previous shows. If you enjoyed listening, a quick reminder to please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen, and please share us with your friends. Tweet us your thoughts at, at rospodcast, or you can email us at audrey at rospod.org or thomas at rospod.org or me, david, at rospod.org. We'd love to hear from you, and thanks so much for listening. Take care. Center for Primary Care is sponsoring a conference on October 10th in Boston entitled Primary Care in 2020, Future Challenges, Tips for Today. The conference aims to help leaders in primary care prepare for an uncertain future while still delivering high-quality patient care right now. Among many other distinguished leaders in primary care, Dr. Jeffrey Brunner, founder of the Camden Coalition and featured in Atul Gawande's famous Hotspotters article will speak. Review Systems listeners can enter the code RADIO in all lowercase to receive 15% discount on the registration fees for all of the various options. You can find a link to the registration form and agenda for the conference on our website, or you can go directly to the Harvard Center for Primary Care site at primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. That's primarycare.hms.harvard.edu 
and enter the promo code RADIO. Thank you.